glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Gospel of the Lord. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even though the grass withers and the flower fades, your word endures forever. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you'll open each of our hearts and minds to receive your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And be seated. Well, in our gospel reading, Jesus gives this precious invitation. It's an invitation to spiritual rest. In these famous words, Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There are so many people today who are, are spiritually restless. Uh, for example, there are people who get to the end of their life and they realize they don't have peace with God. They don't know God. And so they're troubled. I heard some time ago about a woman who came to the end of her life and actually she was, she was on her deathbed. And as she neared the end, she struggled and she fought against death. She was spiritually restless. And the problem was, that although she believed in God, she didn't know if she had done enough to merit his favor. She didn't really understand grace. She didn't have rest. She was spiritually restless. And then there are people, I think all of us know people like this, who, who seem to be on a perpetual spiritual search, search for truth, but they never really arrive. I can think of friends in college, for example, who started to get into the drug culture, and then they got into Eastern religion, and then they ended up in some sort of vague New Age Gnosticism. But they've just been on a perpetual search, but they've never really arrived at spiritual truth, and so they've been restless their whole life. And I wonder about you today. Where are you this morning? Are you at rest spiritually? Are you settled do you have peace with God, or are you spiritually restless? I want you to look at this passage that we have printed in the bulletin. Matthew chapter 11. And in this passage, Jesus talks about two attitudes towards God. Two postures towards God and the things of God. One attitude leads to spiritual ruin leads to judgment. And then the other attitude leads to spiritual rest, leads to salvation. We can all take one or of these two attitudes, one of these postures, humility or pride. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. So this first attitude that he's talking about here towards God is one of pride. Pride. The Christian tradition has always held that pride is the chief sin. It's the foundational sin. C.S. Lewis said that all other sins are flea bites in comparison to pride. And that's because pride leads to every other sin, leads to every other vice. It is the complete, this was quoting C.S. Lewis here, it is the complete anti-God state of mind. We see pride at work in this passage in a couple of ways. First, there were some people who were too proud to receive from God. Too proud to receive the revelation of God that was coming through, first, the ministry of John the Baptist, 
And second, the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God sent John the Baptist. So to reject John the Baptist was to reject the revelation that God was sending through him, the message that God was sending through him. God sent, of course, his son, Jesus Christ. And so to reject Jesus is to reject the revelation of God that was coming through Jesus Christ. And that's what we see going on here. Look at how Jesus talks about what people were saying about him and his cousin, John the Baptist. Verse 18, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Remember, John the Baptist was an ascetic of, of sorts. He, he lived on locusts and wild honey. He um, had garments of camel's hair. And so some people looked at John the Baptist and they said, well, this guy is too extreme. He, he overemphasizes holiness too much. He's got this message about repentance. Uh, they conceded, yes, he's got spiritual power, but it must be demonic. And so people found a way, some people found a way to reject the ministry and the message of John the Baptist. And then look at what they said about Jesus. Jesus is talking about himself here when he refers in verse 19 to the Son of Man. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him. So they were critiquing John the Baptist for not eating or drinking. And now they say about Jesus, who came eating and drinking, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So some people were saying, John the Baptist, oh, he's too rigid. And now the same people are saying, oh, Jesus, he's too loose. What's the problem? Is it with John? Is it with Jesus? No, Jesus has pointed out the problem is with them. The problem is... a is the pride in their heart that rejects the revelation of God. The problem is pride. So rather than being open to Jesus or open to John the Baptist, they find a way to dismiss him. Jesus says this generation, and he's talking about his contemporaries, but really this applies to anybody who rejects the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. He says this generation is like children who start complaining to each other during playtime because they're not getting along. We've all seen that, haven't we? I've certainly witnessed this a couple of times in my house. It even happens in pastor's houses where brothers and sisters fight with one another. Uh, play dates gone bad. <laughs> Why? Because the children are not getting their way. We played the flute and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. I'm going to take my ball and I'm going home. I'm not going to play with you anymore. And unfortunately, I think this is how some people today treat the God of the Bible. You're not dancing our tune, so we'll dismiss you and we'll create our own gods to replace the revelation that's been given to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, a while back, a reporter interviewed the pop singer Madonna. She was, what, the Britney Spears of the 80s? She was the Britney Spears of my day. And um, I guess she's still going at it, Madonna is, but this was a while back in this interview that the reporter said, I noticed that before you go on stage, you and your entourage pray together. And so he said to Madonna, who are you praying to? Who are you praying to? And she said, well, uh, I'm praying to God. And he said, well, who is God? And she said, well, God is my idea of God. 
I, I don't really know. Uh, maybe God is a being or a state of consciousness or God is a power within myself. I really don't know because I could change my mind in half an hour. It's very personal. Now, that's, that, I'm just quoting that as representative of how some people in our culture think about God. I'm not mocking people like that. I'm just saying that's how a lot of people think. They don't know who God is. Sometimes that's the fault of their own. They've heard the revelation. They've heard who Jesus Christ is. They've heard the gospel, and they've rejected it. And sometimes it's the fault of the church because we haven't shared the gospel with people. But many people are walking around with this conception in mind that God is who I determine who he is. Well, if God is the project and the projection of your own mind and heart, that's not the true God. That is, friends, that's an idol. God is God. And we have to receive who he is and how he's revealed himself. And even Christians are tempted to create idols, aren't we? Aren't we tempted to turn Jesus into something he's not, really? Maybe turn him into a life coach or a guide to our own success. Jesus, in this passage, calls us to humble ourselves and to receive God as he's revealed himself. But to not receive him is a symptom of pride. So not only did people in Jesus' day show, demonstrate pride by, by refusing to receive God's revelation, but then they refused to repent. That's another symptom of pride, of spiritual pride. Look at verse 29. Then he began to denounce, excuse me, verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And then he lists some of these cities, these cities in Galilee where he worked extraordinary miracles, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. It was in Bethsaida, for example, where he, uh, he performed this great miracle of feeding 5,000 people with just a couple of pieces of fish and loaves of bread. They saw these miracles. Some people saw these miracles, and yet they refused to believe, and they refused to repent. Now, this is kind of interesting and I think instructive for all of us that healing and signs and wonders are not enough to bring people to repentance. Sometimes I think as the church, we think if we just saw more, more healing, more signs and wonders, then automatically people would, would fall on their faces before God and repent. And, and God is still in the healing business. God still works signs and wonders, and that those can be signs to wake people up to the reality of the presence and power of God. I'm thankful that even in this church, we've witnessed, we've seen... God's healing power operate in people's lives, and we give thanks to God for that when that happens. But for people to come to repentance, that requires another miracle. That requires God taking a hard heart and turning it into a soft start, a heart, a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It's another miracle when people begin to, to wake up to the reality of who God is and they see themselves in the light of who God is. That's what repentance is. Repentance begins when you see God for who he is, his holiness, his majesty, and his power, and his great love. And then you begin to see yourself in the light of who God is. You look at yourself and you see your sin. His holiness, my sin. His greatness, my smallness. His love, my selfishness. The way that you've ignored God and flouted his word and rebelled against him. And repentance brings you to a place where you say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I admit my need for you. I admit my need for forgiveness. 
Repentance is a miracle. It is a work of God. But spiritual pride refuses repentance. The poet W.H. Auden said this, We would rather be ruined than changed. That's stubborn spiritual pride. Rather than change, I would rather be ruined. And that certainly applies to those that Jesus is talking about here. If they do not repent, Jesus says they're going to face utter spiritual ruin, the judgment of God. You, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Haiti. It will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for you. Why? Because they were given a very clear revelation of who Jesus Christ was through his mighty works. And they, in their stubborn pride, did not repent. I wonder if any of us here, we could just examine our hearts, be honest with with ourselves before God, and ask, are any of these symptoms in my life? Or have they ever been in my life? I can tell you they've been in my life. Refusing to receive the revelation of Jesus Christ, making him into something he's really not. I've seen that at work in my heart. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And so we always have to go back to the scripture to correct our view of who God is. We're finite, he's infinite. We're small, he's great. We need to receive the revelation God has given us in Jesus Christ. But do you recognize that idolatry in your own heart? Again, I see it in my heart. How about the refusal sometimes to repent? The the stubborn pride that says, I'm I'm, I'm one to cling to my own ways rather than humble myself in the presence of God and admit that I'm a sinner and I need salvation. These are all symptoms of spiritual pride. Jesus, in this passage of Scripture, thank God, does not leave us with that. So it's been pretty heavy. You guys look like it's been pretty heavy. All right, now listen to these refreshing words. Listen to these, as we call them in our liturgy, these comfortable words, which comfortable means not get under the covers and under the blankets and and, and get all cozy. Comfortable means liturgically strong words, powerful words, strengthening words. Listen to these comfortable words of Jesus Christ. Come to me. Okay, he's offered these stern warnings and now this tender invitation. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will refresh you spiritually. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is the only time in the Gospels, I think, where the heart of Christ is spoken of. Isn't that interesting? I am gentle and lowly of heart. Jesus comes in gentleness and humility. And he's contrasting himself with the Jewish leaders of the day. He's saying, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. The religious leaders in Jesus' day put heavy burdens on people through legalism. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be refreshed, come to me. How are we to come to Christ? How are we going to come to him in order to be refreshed? Like little children, he says. In humility. So there's one posture we can take towards God, and that is pride. And this other posture is humility. And that's what Jesus says. I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding, those people who think they know better. Not smart people, he's saying, but people who think spiritually they know better than Jesus. 
I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. And that word in the, in the Greek is just almost like babes or little toddlers, just maybe people who can't even quite talk yet. Our two-year-old Lydia is, is now talking. She's talking a mile a minute. Have you seen Charlotte's Web, that scene where the Will Wilbur the pig discovers that he can talk? I can talk, I can talk, I can talk, he sings this song. And that's kind of how Lydia is. She's discovered that she can talk, and she is going for it. And, and so in order to talk more, she has to learn more, more words. So she's at that stage. Do you remember this stage, or are you in this stage with children or grandchildren? where everything we introduce her to, she says, what is that? We sit down at breakfast with her, a bowl of cereal. What is that? You get her dressed, and, and she's looking at the buttons. She points, what is this, Daddy? She wants to know more words so she can talk more. <laughs> uh, but she's never said to me, as I've explained what things are, she's never said to me, Dad, I don't think so. That's not the right term. I looked in the Oxford English Dictionary, and you're, and you're not using the correct usage. No, she's never done that. She is completely trusting, and she's completely teachable. How come, when it comes to the spiritual life, there are other areas of our life where we understand this? That we need somebody greater than us who knows more than us to teach us. If you're going to be a doctor, you need to submit to a teacher. If you're going to be a professor, a scholar, you need to submit to a mentor. If you're going to be a bricklayer, you need to be an apprentice and submit to somebody who's an expert. How come when it comes to the spiritual life, oftentimes we don't think that's the case? That we don't have to be teachable. We can look to ourselves. But Jesus is saying, if you want to learn, if you want to learn about spiritual refreshing, come to me and learn from me. Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And here we bump up against the doctrine of God's sovereignty, which is a great mystery, which we can't completely fathom. But there's a principle that runs all throughout Scripture. That is, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. The gospel is hidden from the, spiritual, the spiritually proud who feel they have no need for Christ. But then anybody who comes to God in humility will not be turned away. Jesus invites everyone, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. So I wonder if that's you this morning. Is anybody here weary and anxious and burdened, spiritually speaking? There's a promise for you and for me if we just come. That's the condition of the promise. To receive the promise is to come to Christ. For anyone who's anxious about sin and judgment, I don't know if I'm forgiven, I don't know if I've done enough, come to Christ and hear Him say, from the cross, it is finished. Your sin has been paid for. Rest in the finished work of Jesus. For the one who's overwhelmed by the demands and duties of life or by the worries of not having enough, Come to Christ and hear Him say, Your Heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Come to Jesus and receive the promise of provision and rest in Him. For the one who's fearful of life's end, come to Jesus and hear Him say, do not let your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If I go, I'll prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will receive you so that where I am, you will be also. You'll be with me. Come to Christ and receive the assurance of his eternal presence. Let's come to him in humility. Let's pray against the pride that grows up in our heart like an unweeded garden if we're not careful. Let's pray against pride and pray for humility. Let's come to him in a teachable spirit day after day, morning by morning and find our rest in him. Find our rest in him. He is an inexhaustible fountain of refreshment. So I invite you to prove the promises of Jesus in your own life beginning today and throughout this week. Remember these words this week. Let's pray. We do want to take these words with us today. Lord Jesus, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will refresh you. And help us, Lord, morning by morning, day by day, evening by evening, to just bring this promise before our minds and to look to you. Thank you, Lord God, that you have proven these promises in our lives. And help us, God, when doubt and unbelief creep in, to go back to them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.